now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode 5 of the 2020 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Travis Rush, a postdoctoral research associate at Texas A&M University, about fluctuating temperatures in forensically important blowflies. Forensic entomologists use predictable developmental rates of certain necrophagous insects to estimate time of colonization, post-mortem interval, and the time of death. However, extreme fluctuations in temperature can affect these development rates in unknown ways. Dr. Rush hopes to shed light on this issue and advance the field of forensic entomology through his grant work. Listen along as he discusses the utility of forensic entomology, the life cycle of blowflies, and the next phase of research in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today our guest is Dr. Travis Rush, a postdoctoral research associate at Texas A&M University. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious, where did your interest in forensic entomology start? So that's actually kind of an interesting question because I would say it has a little bit of luck because I was uh, graduating at the time uh, from graduate school that my current PIs, uh, Drs. Aaron Tyrone and Dr. Tomberlin, were awarded an NIJ grant, and they were looking for somebody outside the field of forensic entomology that had more of a background in thermobiology, and they reached out to my uh, PhD advisor, Mike Angeletta, and lo and behold, uh, I was a good fit for it and eventually got offered the position. So when you were a kid, you didn't say, I want to grow up to be a forensic entomologist? Not particularly. Uh, I always liked the, you know, classic you know, forensic shows on TV, but it wasn't a career aspiration of mine or anything like that. So for graduate school, actually, I worked with lizards for, as a model organism, and then for my postdoc, switched to forensically important insects, uh, such as blowflies. So yeah, I, I was reading your bio earlier, and it said that you started with an interest in how animals function across landscapes. Yes. Can you tell me what, what exactly that means? That's more of like a comparative approach. So uh, you could be interested in a single question. So maybe what is the critical thermal maximum so the, the hottest temperature an organism can be exposed to for a given performance, maybe survival. And then what I'm interested in is how does that change across different landscapes? So how do desert organisms compare to tropical organisms and compare to temperate organisms? So I'm interested in different traits to maybe not just survival, but maybe overposition in blowflies would be an interesting thing to look at. So how did that lead to your current position? Did you have publications in the field, or was it just interpersonal networking? A little bit of both. I had some uh, thermobiology publications uh, at the time before I was obtained this job. And I think mainly just was networking where, my, as I said, my current bosses were kind of reaching out to somebody. My, my advisor for PhD was pretty well known in the field of thermobiology. He wrote the book Thermal Adaptation that Dr. Tyrone used to formulate some of his grant. So that was kind of what attracted them to reach out to my PhD lab 
and it was a good fit. So like I was, could do more thermal biology work with them and just kind of broaden my uh, system, move on from vertebrates now to working with invertebrates. So you're currently a postdoc. Do you do any casework along with that or are you strictly a researcher at this point? I have been given the opportunity with Dr. Tomberlin to assist in some of his casework. So I'm not a board certified forensic entomologist, so I don't do any casework on my own, but I have helped process some data and write case reports with Dr. Tomberlin. Do you know what's involved in becoming a board certified forensic entomologist? Is that a career prospect you're considering? Yeah, that, that is something that I would like to eventually achieve. Um, from what I've been told, uh, it's a two-part examination from ABFE, the American Board of Forensic Entomology. Uh, they give you a written exam, so which is my understanding is basic questions on the field and history of uh, forensic entomology, and you get scored on that, and you have to make a minimum score. And then the other part is they give you some evidence. Bag could be you know photographs, it could be actual dead insect specimens, could be juveniles, adults, and you have to analyze the evidence and write up a case report, and it has to be to the certain standard of the ABFE, and then. If you pass that exam, you become board certified. Do you need to be a board certified in order to lead casework? Technically, you do not need to be board certified, but I think it provides you with good credentials that law enforcement are maybe more willing to work with you because you've actually proven yourself to the field of your peers. You do know the history of the field. You are able to adequately write case reports and interpret the data that goes with it. I am coming into this with very little knowledge, admittedly, about forensic entomology. So before we get into the specifics about your research, can you tell me a little bit about what role entomology plays in forensic? So forensic entomology is actually a fairly broad field. It has three different branches. It has urban entomology, it has insects as feed and food, and it has uh, medical legal entomology, which is what I specialize in and what that is uh, involving more death investigations. But urban entomology can be something like an example is termites in a home. So say somebody buys a home and a few months later they find they have termites, they call in an urban forensic entomologist and these are more civil lawsuits. So it's kind of who's to blame? Were the termites already there or did the people bring them with them? And the insects in your food is kind of a similar idea. Think about cases where you, get, you go to a restaurant and you get a cockroach on your plate. So did it come from the kitchen? Or sometimes people try to you know, win illegitimate lawsuits and they put it on themselves, so they call in a forensic entomologist that specializes in that area and they can determine who was at fault. Yeah, I never thought about who you would need to call in a situation like that, but that makes sense that you'd want someone with some knowledge to help figure out where the cockroach came from. <laughs> um, so for the medical legal forensic entomology, are there any key assumptions that have, that have been established through basic research at this point? There are a few assumptions in the field. Uh, one assumption associated with the post-mortem interval, which can be interpreted as the time of death, in order for that to be a valid measure, you have to assume that the insects colonize a dead body immediately after death. And in some cases, that has been validated. For example, I use pigs often as kind of surrogate bodies, and we put them out in the field, and by the time I drive one out there, I've already got flies around my truck, so they find it kind of on the way in, and they have, they're really good at you know, finding bodies. But there can be other times where maybe a body is not exposed, so maybe it's in the trunk of a car, and there's a delay in the colonization. So it really kind of depends you know, what type of situation we're dealing with, if the insects can find uh, the body immediately or if there's a delay. I feel like your postdoc experience is so vastly different from mine. <laughs> being cooped up in a chemistry lab versus driving dead pig bodies with flies swarming around your truck. <laughs> yeah, I'm always curious what people on the highway think when I've got, you know, 10 pigs 
dead in the back of my truck. And, but it is Texas, so there's a lot of feral hogs out there, so I actually get a lot of donated hogs. And hog hunting is a pretty popular sport for removal of the invasive hogs. And, all right, so I'm very familiar with what a chemistry lab looks like and what a tox lab looks like. I would love to know more about what your research environment in your laboratory looks like. Do you just have jars of yeah. larvae sitting around? What does it look like when you go into the lab to work? Uh, depending on what room you go into, it looks very different. So we have some wet labs that look more similar to a chemistry lab or a molecular biology lab because some of the people in our lab do molecular work and DNA work with the flies. Uh, other rooms, so we have a specific room, uh, we call it the, the blowfly colony room, where we have a wall, it's a bookshelf, a metal bookshelf, and we have plastic bins that are filled with jars of larvae at certain times. Uh, so there's a strong ammonia smell, so you get used to the smell of uh, larvae, and uh, we feed them beef liver primarily, so there's rotting meat in that room, and it's, it's something to definitely get used to, and it's a shock factor if you're haven't experienced it before. And also in that room, we keep a bunch of individual cages where we keep a couple hundred flies uh, in each cage. And at any given time, we can maybe have you know, 20 to 40 cages set up of flies. So you also get that when you walk in, there's that you can almost feel the buzzing from these flies. And we have our meat and blood refrigerator. We feed them blood uh, as the adults are developing as a protein source. And we also keep uh, whole beef livers. We cut those up and put them in Ziploc bags. and. Uh, then we feed that to the larvae so they get a good protein source to develop on that's similar-ish to human tissue. So how do you choose which ones become a part of the experiments? Probably depends on your question. So if you want to ask real basic questions and start uh, get development sets, you're probably going to choose species, especially for that region or uh, that don't have current development data sets. But if you, once you establish those, you can ask other research questions. Uh, part of it is logistics, you know, what's available to you. You can go out and catch certain blowflies in your region that you can't, you know, other regions have different species of blowflies. So like each lab kind of more or less seems to work on the species that are more native to where that uh, lab is. So do you go out and catch blowflies? Yes. What does it take to catch, do you like have like a big bug net? Like yeah, it, it use a net. Uh, so there's different ways to do it. I use, I go out and I put out a piece of meat. So it could, be a, it could be a dead pig, it could be a beef liver. Chicken liver works really well because it's really nasty smelling, so the flies are more attracted to it, it seems. And they'll come and they'll fly around and you can use a bug net and you swipe them and then I put them in a uh, insect container and take those back to the lab. Uh, alternatively, uh, sometimes we piggyback off of our collections on different research. So another project I'm working on is measuring the temperatures of decomposing bodies. So I have a thermal FLIR uh, camera that I take photos of, of dead pigs or dead humans over time and measure the different temperature profiles of that decomposing body. And when those are out there, obviously they're going to be colonized by blowflies. So an easier method for collecting flies is then I just grab handfuls of the larvae and put them in the jar, rear them out, and then some species you can tell by larvae pretty easily. Some species we wait until they're adults and then we separate them and put them in different colonies. People have also developed uh, traps where they put some type of meat out and the flies can get in, but they can't get out. All right, so this week you presented results from an NIJ-funded grant at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences annual meeting. Your presentation entitled Development Responses to Fluctuating Temperatures of a Forensically Important Blowfly was part of the NIJ Forensic Science R&D Symposium. 
So before we get into the details, are there any other researchers on this project that you'd like to acknowledge? So for this particular project that I presented on, um, both Drs. Aaron Tyrone and Dr. Jeff Tomberlin, they're the, the PIs on the grant, so I'd like to acknowledge that they've helped me through various aspects of this project. They provided, obviously, the funding they were awarded, uh, allowed this project to happen. Uh, there's also a student, Abigail Orr. She's a PhD student currently in Dr. Tyrone's lab. She was very instrumental in helping collect the data and uh, take care of the flies that were required for this project. So Travis, can you just give me an overview in sort of in layman's terms of the purpose and goals of your project? The purpose of this project is to improve our current methods for measuring the effects of temperature on development of blowflies. You're focusing on one specific type of blowfly. I'm not even going to attempt to say the name. Can you, for our listeners, tell us exactly which blowfly that is? Sure. For this study, I use Cochleomyia macellaria. And why are you focusing on that particular insect as opposed to any others? Well, I guess there are a couple general reasons why. It's one of the two species that was proposed in the grant, so we had to kind of use that insect. But also it's a forensically important blowfly as it regularly colonizes uh, dead bodies. It's been documented in casework numerous times and it's a pretty uh, common blowfly in North America and particularly in Texas where I'm doing the research. You're looking at how extreme temperatures and temperature fluctuations affect the development of this blowfly. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the typical development or life cycle of this insect is? The typical life cycle of a blowfly is you have an adult. Um, an adult female typically needs to find a protein source, and often you'll get two types of females that will find, uh, utilize a dead body. You'll get virgin females that use it as a protein source. They'll drink the blood or drink some of the fluids coming off that body, and you'll get gravid females that are, already have eggs, and they use it as an oviposition site. And then the eggs are laid on the body, and they hatch into larvae. And these larvae go through three different instar stages. So they molt into from first to second to third as they grow and shed their skin. And then they finish feeding, they obtain enough protein, and they leave the body, and they find a place to pupate, and they form a puparium. And then the pupal stage lasts for a certain amount of time, depending on species and depending on different environmental conditions. And then the pupae emerges into an adult and repeats the life cycle. So how do you measure the development? Is it just visual inspection? Do you have any kind of tools to help you out? The way we measure the development really relates to the different larval instar stages. So what we can do in a lab is we can create development uh, data sets by exposing the, uh, the developing blowflies to different temperatures and measuring the duration of each of these different life stages. So instance, how long does it take you know, an egg to hatch at 25 degrees versus at 27 or 30 degrees? And then we can you know, continue observing the blowflies through their different life stages. And for how long does the first instar stage last? How long does the second? How long the third? Pupil and so on. So what are your findings so far? What kind of development responses are you seeing? So what we're seeing is there's two main findings. One is that with a large enough magnitude, we get deviations from comparing it to development at constant temperatures. Other result is Depending on if we initially ramp the temperature up or ramp the temperature down, that is if we expose the eggs to initially cold temperatures or warm temperatures, that has downstream effects, meaning that it, it affects the development beyond the egg stage all the way through until adult emergence. All right, so you also mentioned in your presentation today that uh, results from studies in the literature on the effects of temperature fluctuation on development are mixed. 
So yes. why do you think that is? What are some possible explanations for these differences? I think one possible explanation is a lot of these studies are done and they apply different uh, magnitudes of fluctuation. So for my results, when I did plus or minus five degrees, a fairly moderate fluctuation, I did not see as extreme or results as I did when I, comparing it to the plus or minus 10 degree fluctuations. So if they didn't have a large enough magnitude of fluctuation, they might not have seen a strong effect. Another one could be where, they where the fluctuations dipped into. So if they did it at an optimal temperature and fluctuated around there, it might not be very costly to deviate right around the optimal development temperature. But if they did it at maybe a warmer temperature and went into suboptimal, maybe you know, possibly close to lethal temperatures, that might be costly and actually be the reason for some of these uh, developmental effects that I'm seeing. At what time intervals are you measuring the development? Are you looking at these things every 30 minutes, every hour? Not quite that much. The eggs, I, I check those once every hour so we could know pretty precisely when they hatched. And after the eggs hatched, collecting larvae and me measuring their development at 12 hour intervals. And the reason for that is the egg stage lasts anywhere from 10 to 24 hours depending on temperature, so we wanted a finer resolution for the egg, but the larval stages can last for 20 to you know, 75 hours potentially depending on the stage, so we don't need to collect continuously from a, a single stage. For that egg stage, are you guys pulling all-nighters in the lab? Yeah, that's not the, that's not the fun day. Yeah, it's sit in your office, work on something, and every 45 minutes walk to the back lab and open all the jars and see if you have larvae. And then when you finally do, you get to go home. So you mentioned one alternative approach that is currently being used to account for temperature variability, which was the accumulated degree, day, or hour model. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? It's a product of temperature by time. So it, you get a universal measurement of accumulated degree hours or days depending on your resolution. And what we can, the re way we use this then is in the field, obviously they're not in a laboratory when we find a dead body, we need to use weather station data to relate temperature to development. And these weather stations, if they record them in uh, daily temperatures, we use accumulated degree day models. If we can get hourly temperatures from them, we can then use accumulated degree hour models. And what these models do is they take into consideration some of the fluctuation by taking an average. When the averages are driven by daily highs and daily lows, so that way we can use average temperatures from these weather stations to estimate uh, development rates of the blowflies. So the data that you're collecting in the lab is in much finer time points than you would get. You, you know the temperature fluctuations on a, on a much more precise scale than just looking at an accumulated temperature model or something like that. Does the data that you're producing, does that agree with an accumulated day model? Have you tried calculating it out? Actually, yes. So when I first presented the data, it was in general hours but I do have it plotted in uh, other figures for the paper where we translate it to the accumulated degree hour model. And you can use any resolution really, I mean, I guess within an hour to a day, you can take my data, which I have done, I just didn't present it that way today, but it, it fits into the accumulated degree day system. Are there any other sources of research outside the realm of forensic entomology that you found useful? Actually, yes. Uh, agriculture literature has been really helpful because they also use the accumulated degree day model, but they've also uh, been doing it for a little bit longer than uh, forensic entomology, and they've developed some curved linear models. So if you remember what the, the thermal performance curve that I was showing up there, kind of like the skewed bell, bell curve to some degree, 
if you think about that model, there's some nonlinear portions. And an accumulated degree day model assumes that the relationship between development and temperature is linear. In certain regions, particularly in the middle, that fits you know, the hypothesis really well, and these models do a really good job of estimating time intervals. However, there are some nonlinear portions to that curve that the accumulated degree day model, in some cases, can still kind of be robust enough to be accurate, but in some cases, maybe curved linear models would be a little bit better in estimating these timelines. So you presented some very interesting cutting edge results here this week. And particularly you're, you're finding that not only does temperature fluctuation itself affect the development, but which direction the temperature fluctuates, whether you start with your ramp going to a higher temperature versus your ramp going down to a lower temperature can have a dramatic impact on the final development of the blowfly. So envisioning the future, how do you see practitioners using this information? How is it going to impact how these cases are worked? Sure, that's a really good question. One way that I see it using in the near future is uh, thinking about what the ramping directions mean. So if you have an overposition event in the morning, they're exposed to a moderate temperature, it's kind of cool, and then it warms throughout the day. So that's kind of like a ramping up treatment for my experiment. All right. So an an oval position event, does that mean that the fly lays eggs? Yes. Okay. Alternatively to that, if you have an oval position event where the fly lay eggs in the evening, they're going to be exposed to a moderate evening temperature that is going to ramp down overnight. So if we know that early on in the life of these flies, particularly the egg stage, if the thermal exposures have lasting effects that are either going to accelerate or slow down development, we could potentially use this to adjust um, some estimates of uh, development for blowflies. So in your estimation, how far could the adjustments be? Are we talking a matter of one to two hours, up, up to a day? Like how, how big of an impact could this have? Um, at the egg stage, we saw eight hours of variability, just depending on the initial ramping direction and the uh, magnitude of fluctuation. And they all had the same average temperature of 25 degrees, and those eggs hatched at 16 hours, and then there was eight hours of variability, so that eight hours is 50% variability, so there can be quite a bit of uh, variability, so they can have uh, early on a, a long impact. And then the total difference was 45 hours in this case, so that could be as much as two days difference in development just based on initial ramping uh, up or down. So again, these early thermal experiences by uh, blowflies have downstream effects that are affecting by a matter of days in this case. But granted, this is you know, one study, this is one species and one population, so I don't want to overextend the results to this. It can't be extrapolated to other species, and I'm really hesitant to even extrapolate it to the same species in other regions that experience different uh, thermal environments. So you mean perhaps blowflies that are accustomed to different temperature fluctuations as a part of their normal daily routine than the ones that you used in your study? Yeah, so say we have a population in Florida of cochlear maslary that are used to fairly warm and humid conditions, and you have a population in Arizona that are used to very warm and dry conditions. I imagine their responses to a given thermal treatment may differ just based on their evolution in their different environments. So where do your flies come from? College Station, Texas. 
Is that where they're born and bred and have evolved from, or are they? Uh, Kothiamai has been native to that region for quite some time. Do you colonize your own supply? Like, are you hatching and reusing them? Are you bringing in fresh new eggs for every study? How do you keep your supply? Uh, both. Uh, we have laboratory colonies for multiple species that we keep in the lab. And then before they reach 10 generations, we always make sure we go out to the field and bring in new flies that are uh, referred to as wild type. This will help prevent them from acclimating to laboratory conditions to some extent. And it also increases the genetic diversity so we don't have all flies that end up brothers and sisters. I suppose that would be important too. <laughs> so what's next for your research? Is there another phase? Or what do you plan to do next for your extensions? Sure, so the, the next phase that I want to take the research is moving away from these no-choice experiments to more choice experiments, particularly looking at the thermoregulatory ability of larvae. What I mean by thermoregulation is how accurately do blowfly larvae maintain stable body temperatures. So there's already been research out um, in the field. Uh, Jason Bird did some back in the 90s revealing larval preferences, where you put larvae on a thermal gradient, including Cochleomyia macellaria, the species I'm working with. They were on a thermal gradient where one end was warm and one end was cold, and he watched them throughout their development to see where they moved to, given a choice. And they showed very specific thermal preferences that actually differed by age. And I find this really interesting because if the larvae are actually seeking out microclimates, they're able to maintain very stable body temperatures and they might be even more reliable to tell what temperature they're gonna develop at because giving them no choice experiments in the lab, either if it's a constant temperature or even these fluctuating temperatures I use to simulate more ecologically relevant scenarios, they may during the warming phase, other than the egg, obviously because they're immobile or the pupae, but the larvae might be able to move to cooler microclimates when it gets hot into warmer microclimates when it gets cold, and even though the weather data said there was a 20 degree fluctuation, the larvae may actually only be experiencing a five or a 10 degree fluctuation, so we know a narrower range of temperatures they experience, and we can even more accurately predict their development times. As all these new revelations are being discovered about the development, what do you think needs to happen? What's the missing link to take from the research into the practice? Well, one thing that definitely needs to happen for everything that comes out of the research end is there needs to be field validation. So I can do all these experiments in a lab and get really interesting results, but if I can't replicate this under field conditions, then there's limitations to actually applying it because you're not going to get a lot of dead bodies falling in the laboratory. So they're going to be in these different field conditions. All right, so when do you expect to release your final findings and data from this particular research project? Well, this research project is ongoing, so it's uh, the life cycle for them typically takes about a month, so in order to do a couple more trials, it's going to probably be another couple of months to finish the data collection, and uh, then by the time we write up the manuscript, realistically, by looking at maybe six months before these results are going to be um, out for publication, potentially. Okay, so somewhere around fall of 2020? Yeah, that would be go. a good time estimate. And also depend on the journal speed of reviewing the paper. So, Do you think you'll pursue this line of research after your postdoc as you start your own independent research career? That is the goal. I'm currently applying to uh, faculty positions right now. So if anybody listening is looking to hire, uh, I'm looking for a job. And I'm looking to do uh, forensic entomology. And that's what I've been pitching in my job applications because I really like doing thermal ecology and 
this forensic entomology has kind of made it almost the best of both worlds for me. I get to do basic thermobiology that has this really cool application, I think, in you know, human dimensions of forensics, something that even during graduate school I, I didn't even see as an option. So. Are there any other final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Just want to let them know that forensic entomology is a growing field. Something interesting that people might not know is there's only one full-time forensic entomologist in the United States. That's uh, Dr. Michelle Sanford. She works uh, for the Houston Police Department. So all the other forensic entomologists are, a lot of them are college professors. So that's what they do for research in their laboratory. And then they take on casework in addition to their faculty position role. So if someone is interested in pursuing that, career, what is the course of study? Do you go into biology, chemistry? What kinds of classes do you take leading up to that? Because remember when I was starting out in undergrad, entomology wasn't something you can just take on its own. Fair enough. And now it is. Like Texas A&M has a forensics program, and they also have a separate entomology program that you can get degrees. And a lot of students are double majoring in forensics and entomology if they want to do forensic entomology because they're going to have to do something in addition to just straight forensic entomology. So they'll have to go into academia potentially, like I mentioned being a college professor, a lot of forensic entomologists. They might work for a government position, so like USDA they could work for and take on potential casework. ABFE, the American Board of Forensic Entomology, we talked about board certification. They actually have a forensics, uh, forensic entomology technician certification that they are just starting up. There's only a handful of people that have been certified at the technician level. And the difference here is they don't write the case reports, but they're trained in insect identification and they're trained in insect collection and shipping the uh, specimens to a forensic entomologist. So somebody that's maybe in law enforcement could be a crime scene investigator where they collect you know, different types of evidence and they get the certification and they can also collect entomological evidence. So it's kind of an add-on to what they're already doing. All right, well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Travis Rush, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss his NIJ-funded grant. So thank you for being here with us, Travis. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicsCOE.org. I'm Megan Grabenauer, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode of the 2020 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Jose Almaral of Florida International University about novel statistical approaches for the interpretation of trace evidence. Until then, stay tuned for a special release episode in honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Just Science will be sitting down with Maria Simmons to discuss COVID-19 and its impact on supporting victims of sexual assault. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.